maybe I'll, I'll start by following up on what I said about St. Paul, because this is a, a story that interests me terrifically, in one part because I'm, I'm just interested in St. Paul, but also because there's so much misunderstanding and he can become kind of a divisive figure this way. So the, the way the story is often told is he's on his way to Damascus and this bright light shines, he falls off his horse, he loses his sight, he hears a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, if I may ask, so Lord, you know? And the Lord says, well, I'm Jesus Christ and you're persecuting me. And he's taken to Damascus uh, to uh, uh, the house of... Uh, Ananias, right? Uh, and uh, Ananias lays hands on him and the scales fall from his eyes. He's baptized and he becomes Paul. There's one problem with this telling of the story. And that is, uh, there's actually a long, long interlude after this initial conversion before he becomes an active participant in the local church at Antioch. Okay, so because what happens is Paul actually goes to Tarsus. And he is in Tarsus... Uh, for 12 or 13 years, okay? He says this in his letter to the Galatians. We don't get this in Acts. Luke just kind of telescopes it all. Uh, and a chapter or two later, uh, the, the Gentiles are participating in the church at Antioch, and there's a dispute about this. So Barnabas goes to Tarsus and brings Paul back, and he helps to minister. Paul being a brilliant rhetorician, a great scholar of the law, uh, but also a Christian now, becomes one of the workers at Antioch. And eventually, of course, he's sent out from Jerusalem uh, to be one of the great missionaries of the early church. But for 12 or 13 years, what's he doing? What's he doing? He's rethinking everything he thought, right? So he had it all wrong. And, and, and recalibrating how he understands the law didn't happen overnight. It took intensive study for many years. Okay? Similar thing with St. Antony the Great, the first uh, great hermit monk from Egypt. Uh, again, because the life of Antony is relatively short, it's only 90-some pages, and his initial conversion only takes about four pages, it's easy to miss how long it took. So he was about 20 years old when his parents died, and he went out to the desert, and he gradually withdraws, withdraws, withdraws. He finally ends up in this abandoned fort many miles from civilization. And uh, his friends finally have had enough, and they come and they break down the fort, and Antony comes forth, and he is a man completely in harmony with reason, uh, and he's not... Uh, uh, too fat from having eaten too much. He's not emaciated from not having eaten enough. He's not bothered by the crowds, um, nor is he moved by them to flatter them in any way. He's just himself, right? How long was, did it take? How old was he <laughs> when he comes forth from the fort? Does anyone know? 50 He's 50-something, yeah, so 30-some years. Okay, so it's a long time. So when we talk about conversion, we're not necessarily talking about something where we, we become a different person overnight. Again, this does happen. We hear about, say, Saul in the Old Testament. He falls in with the prophets. He's anointed, and he becomes a different man, right? Um, but most times what we see in the life of the Spirit is we have to relearn certain behaviors. We have to change, and this takes time. And that's just normal human reality. You know, we're creatures of habit, and changing habits can take a long time, right? Uh, I often, you hear me use examples from Alcoholics Anonymous a lot. Uh, my, my father's a recovered alcoholic, and once a year I go to a meeting with him. And again, it's very interesting. You have people at all kinds of stages of change. Like some people are really just hanging in there just to get to the meeting at all. Others are really fired up about the meeting, but step four, they're not quite sure they're ready for. Others are really hoping they get to steps 10, 11, 12. You know, they're, they're really at that position where they're ready to help other people in a really solid way. Uh, but this is, it kind of depends on the person. It depends on how much time. It depends on how serious the addiction was. Um, all these factors play in. But human beings, being what we are, 
change takes time. So when we talk about conversion of life, we're talking about learning good habits of behavior so that over time God's grace will penetrate us more and more and will become the persons that God intends us to be. Uh, but we won't do it necessarily by, by trying really hard because when we try really hard, we're likely to use the old habits of behavior, uh, the old methods, and we want to relearn everything, even the methods. And so we have to take a certain amount of stuff on faith. What happens in the monastery uh, when new people come to the monastery is we hand them you know, packets of rules. <laughs> like that you're going to walk this way, you're going to dress this way, you're going to show up for these things at these times. Uh, you're going to address people this way, you're going to wash dishes that way, you're going to mop floors that way. And the... the one of the initial reactions can be like, why does all this matter how you mop the floor? Say, you don't know yet. But if you do this, you'll be living our way of life. Your, your way of life is going to change. You're going to become a different sort of person. Um, so, so conversion of life. This is one of the three vows that monks make and one of the three promises that oblates make. Uh, we've discussed stability and community over the past couple of months, and um, eventually we'll get to obedience. Uh, obedience being the hardest one, I think. But conversion of life is the most important one. It's the real center of our life. We want to be different. We're not satisfied with, with our level of discipleship, and so we want, we want to taste something more profound. And so what oblates say at uh, oblation is, you know, I, I promise to live a monastic form of life as my state of life permits, right? So we're going to have to translate this way of life into a life in the world. And I'll, I'll talk about that toward the end of the meeting. So, now it's interesting that uh, monastic form of life as my state of life permits, uh, the word conversion isn't mentioned there. Right, though it's implied, but I think what actual the actual language there is actually closer to what Saint Benedict says in his text in Latin. Uh, and two things that are interesting about Saint Benedict's entrance into the monastery for newcomers, uh, he he innovates in two ways. Well, no, actually, uh, he innovates in one way, and the other way he he solidifies. Uh, a custom that was very ancient. The innovation is the profession of vows. Okay, so this wasn't done before. Uh, perhaps Benedict thought it was a prudent thing to do to make sure people wouldn't leave too easily so that we, they knew the seriousness of, of the kind of way of life that the community already embraced. So if you really want to be a part of our community, we need you to make a big commitment. So that's part of it. Uh, but he, he has his monks make these vows and you'll notice that they aren't the vows that modern people associate with religious life. Chastity, poverty, and obedience. Poverty, chastity, obedience are, are implied in monastic way of life. Uh, because no, there's no private property. Um, St. Benedict doesn't actually mention celibacy, but it's just that was understood. That, that's what a monk is. Somebody is celibate. Okay? Uh, so that's assumed in the third vow, so obedience, stability, and conversatio, which includes chastity and poverty. But this word conversatio is an interesting one. Uh, it sounds like conversation. And in some old translations of the church fathers, you'll still get that, you know, their conversation of life. Uh, conversatio, the, it's hard to um, translate this into English, but it's a way of life. It implies a kind of political arrangement. So, for instance, uh, St. Paul says in the letter to the Philippians in the, in the Latin translation, our conversatio is in heaven. You know, and, and we sometimes translate this as uh, you know, our citizenship right, is in heaven. Uh, our, our city, our, our polity, uh, our way of life, the, the community, the big community to which we belong is that heavenly one. It's not the one here. Right, uh, and, he, and the translators of Paul's Greek text use this word conversatio. It's the only place it appears in the Bible. Uh, but this is the, the word that Benedict uses. And the implication, again, is that it's a whole structured way of life that includes uh, a whole community and a big community. It's like a, a city, at least. You know, it's not just a neighborhood or a family, but it's, it's, it's a big group of people. You know? um, it's the city of God. Uh, 
so, conversatio morum, that's the full phrase. It's two, two words. And the problem, it gets even weirder here because morum is the genitive plural of the Latin word mos, which means, unfortunately, means way of life. <laughs> so it's almost a synonym for conversatio. Though it, it emphasizes more the cultural aspect, uh, whereas conversatio has more of the political aspect, if I could make that kind of distinction. But in any case, we have this very puzzling phrase that we translate as the way of life of the ways of life. <laughs> uh, it's, it's not easy to translate, and so a lot of translations will just leave conversatio. And a lot of times when monks talk about this vow, we just say conversatio because it's, it's not really translatable. But the basic idea is I promise to live like a monk in, in the strongest possible sense. Everything I do, I, I'm, I'm changing cultures. I had a Latin teacher in college, and when we looked at this word mos, um, he said, uh, if you translate this word by lifestyle, I will flunk you immediately. <laughs> lifestyle is not the same as way of life. What's the difference? Let me ask you that. How, how would you say that there might be a difference between a lifestyle and a way of life. Any thoughts? Mm-hmm. Uh, lifestyle generally is generally understood more to uh, express someone's preferences for living day to day. Whereas a way of life, I, I think, speaks more deeply of core values and foundations on which your life finds its lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Yep, you're, you're almost there. The first part, you're definitely right. So lifestyle is a kind of personal choice. So um, I think I'll live the bohemian lifestyle, right? It's, it's a term that comes out of existential philosophy. Uh, and so the idea is that each of us has to kind of search interiorly for our own values and then express them in a choice of way of life. Okay, our choice of lifestyle, I should use the correct term. Way of life, uh, the way the ancients used this is like this, you know. The Romans had a way of life, and it was different from the Germans. And it was different from the Parthians. The Parthians, their way of life, they, uh, they ate weird food, for example, and they dressed strangely, right? They used a strange language that we can't understand. So a way of life is something that exists before we enter into it. And it, it, it comes with all kinds of givens. It comes with a language. It comes with a literature in that language. It comes with a certain type of music, poetic expression, a way of dressing. Uh, it comes with customs having to do with how the genders relate to each other. It comes with uh, customs having to do with what you eat, when you eat, when you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed, when you celebrate, the holidays that you observe, right? So a way of life uh, is objective. It's outside of me. I don't determine it. Whereas a lifestyle is something I get to choose. I get to decide I'm going to be this way. Um, so as I said, I could choose to live a bohemian lifestyle or a yuppie lifestyle, but it's difficult... For example, to live the French way of life, if you happen to live by yourself in Chicago. Uh, because to live the French way of life, you have to speak French with people. You know, you have to eat at French restaurants with their customs. And so you might have your salad last or something like that, or cheese at the end of the meal. Um, you could do that at home, I suppose. But way of life implies that you share this with other people, right? You share these values. Um, and in fact, one of the difficulties we had as a community, the Father Edward could speak to this better than I can, when the monks first came here is that it was expected that we would live a kind of French way of life because we were a French, we were connected to a French order at the time. Uh, whereas the Benedictine understanding uh, offers much more latitude for inculturation, so kind of a hybrid of American monasticism with the tradition of Benedictine monasticism. So the way of life is something we inherit from 
the Benedictine tradition, and then we live it in the midst of an American. Uh, would, would you say that was a fair? That's very fair. Yeah. So uh, we became Benedictine in part because it allowed us uh, to live a way of life, to inherit a way of life that was translatable into the situation we're in here. Whereas the, the model from Paris didn't translate because it was really very French. Uh, so this is, uh, this is what a way of life is. It's a whole outlook on the world. Um, you know, it, one, you can live in a new culture for a long time and still be discovering, oh, wait a minute. I just understand why they do this. <laughs> it suddenly makes sense to me after 10 years or something. Because, or there may be things like, ah, uh, oh, the French, you know, uh, they always have to do X. And it just drives me nuts. Um, and, and meetings for general chapters is very, very funny because the different cultural groups act differently. They speak differently. Uh, the French are much more combative than the English, for example. When we have a discussion, the French will just tell you what they think in a long, <laughs> a long sort of drawn-out way, whereas the English will, will tend to say sort of, well, everything's fine, and then sort of behind the scenes say, oh, but da-da-da-da, right? And, and we say, like, hey, they shouldn't do that. But then I'm thinking like an American, right? So Americans tend to be pretty direct uh, and uh, pretty blunt in, in sort of the way we speak. Uh, compared to the Italians. Uh, ne neither way is right or wrong, okay? But these are different cultures. These are different ways of life. So what I'm getting at here is when one enters a monastery now, one's expected to take on a new way of life, that very root, deep level. The way we speak, the way we dress, the time we get up in the morning, the way we eat, the way we interact, the way we recreate, the books we read, uh, all of those things, the holidays we celebrate, they're going to be different than what we had in the world. Okay, And acclimating to this can take a long time. Okay, Because it means it, it's going to undo us at a very deep level. Because uh, we've grown up all our lives doing things a certain way. And when this is taken away, we feel like we're in exile. You know, we feel like we're, we're being taken apart. And there, the hope is that we'll be put back together as a new person, right? And by the way, I just I want to apologize that it's so cold in here. We, we don't, you know, we, we have just the one bank of radiators here. And uh, um, the, the, the boiler is way over there. <laughs> uh, so... And I forgot to put on my, my warm shirt under the hat, so I'm, I'm suffering right along with you. But I get to at least move around and gesticulate and sort of keep, keep warm that way. So thank you for your patience uh, with the conditions here. Um, so. Mm -hmm. It, it is, yes. And I think it's for the community to determine whether the person has the intention of persevering. Because it, it's, it's going to take longer than that. The, the church has actually realized this. So St. Benedict only has uh, a year novitiate and then you make solemn profession. Canon law today requires a, some kind of pre-novitiate preparation, which we call a postulancy. Then a, a, at least a year novitiate and then at least three years in simple vows before you can make a, a final permanent commitment. So uh, I, th I think it's understood that as these changes take place, all kinds of interesting things are going to come up that we can't predict at the outset. You know, there will be personal crises along the way. When, when something's going to be asked of me that I have to give up, that I haven't really reckoned with before. <laughs> And uh, so we need to know that the person is, is stable in, in pursuing this objective of becoming a monk because it's going to take more than a year. <laughs> it's going to take more than a year, you know. Um, and, and, it's going, and something that's talked about a lot in Benedictine circles today, which I think is very helpful, though, 
Uh, I'm not sure we've standardized our own language about it, but it's ongoing formation. And so the, the uh, understanding is that formation continues the rest of your life. There's a, let's think about the word form for a second, because this I find helpful too. Uh, and this, this may be from my training as an artist. So an artwork takes a certain kind of form. Uh, so when, in music, we talk about different forms like sonatas, symphonies, operas. Within opera, you've got arias, recitatives, you've got overtures. All of these are different forms. And what, when a composer sits down to write a piece of music, he's trying to perfect that form. He's trying to find a way to, to use the form in such a way to communicate to others the beauty of the music. Uh, and we see that the composers who are most famous are the ones who manage to get closest to the form. So I, I've been thinking a lot about this of late. Uh, for, for me personally, uh, though I share this with lots of people in, in the Western musical tradition, uh, Mozart is kind of pinnacle of formal perfection. Okay. Mozart could not have achieved what he achieved without a couple of generations before him uh, attempting similar kinds of compositions as what he did. So he is able to listen to the great Italian masters and to C.P.E. Bach and Haydn and say like, well, that's really great, but you know what? I could do it better. I'm just going to change this here. And look at that. Isn't it better? And trained musicians who know what this form looks like or sounds like say, yes, that is an improvement. And almost everybody will say that Mozart is an improvement on the, the works of Spohr. He's a German composer of the previous generation whom I'm guessing most of you have never heard of. <laughs> he was actually a big deal, but Mozart was so much better that Spohr went out of the repertoire. Okay? And uh, because they were both aiming at the same form, okay, uh, we'd see a similar thing in, in painting. Uh, I'm not as well versed in that, but I would say, you know, Raphael exhibits a kind of perfection of form. So you look at a piece by Raphael and you say, or, or my personal favorite, Botticelli. So Botticelli, you look at a Botticelli painting and you see uh, he has mastered all the different little things you have to do as a Renaissance artist so that you, you at one time will see the brush strokes and you don't. <laughs> right? Uh, the gestures are perfectly stylized, but they're also natural. All these things that the Renaissance artists were aiming at, certain ones like Raphael and Botticelli were able to realize and perfect. But it took a long time and lots of experiment and, and some missteps and some learning from each other. So monastic life has a form. And each of us as a monk is trying to perfect this form of life. Okay, we're trying to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, but we're using a particular kind of form of life to do it. We're using the divine office, we're using obedience, we're using um, uh, shared meals, mutual obedience, all these kinds of things. Stability of life, Lexio Divina. The goal is to be changed into the perfect expression of the person I'm supposed to be <laughs> in God's eyes, right? But the form is going to help us get there. So uh, the thing about conversion is we're changing forms. You know, we're going from one form of life to another. And again, that means letting go. So let, let me press on with this musical example. So yes, yes, I love Mozart. Uh, I, I even actually adore Beethoven more, though he sort of broke the forms and so <laughs> gave us a situation which, that we've never quite figured out how to fix. Uh, music has gotten more and more and more interesting, but also more and more uh, inaccessible in, in classical music. Um, but entering the monastery, uh, I, I may play Beethoven from time to time, even listen to him, but my affection is more and more for chant, because that is the music that expresses who I am. That is the music that expresses the form of life that God has chosen for me. And so it, it behooves me to change my affections, right? Yes? How did you know that God chose for you? 
uh, because the community said I could make solemn vows. <laughs> That's the short answer. Okay. I, I asked them if I could. They, they discerned. They said yes. And so then God must have said yes. That's what he wants. Yeah. So, um, the, you know, there was obviously a lot of preparation for that, but that's the, that's the certitude. The church said, do this. Can I ask another question? You may. What was it that pulled you far? What confidence or inspiration pulled you far enough along to that? Um, well, I, 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 I would have to answer this briefly again just because I want to stay on topic, but... Um, I think it's, uh, I, I mentioned this at the outset of our meeting today, uh, the fact that all of us are here is an indication that we, we, we sense something in, in our life of prayer, in our life in the world, that, that we'd like to become more like the persons God wants us to be. There's something beautiful about that. And there's a certain dissatisfaction with where I'm at now. Okay, and so what am I going to do? Where am I going to look? Who's going to help me to go in the right direction? Uh, we've got a monastery here, thanks be to God. And so I, I came here and started, you know, I, I had a, an experience of a certain kind of dissatisfaction, a sense that, that God had this beautiful plan for us as, as human beings. And, but I was doing stuff over here <laughs> instead of looking at that plan. And so, but then I also realized that if I'm going to realize God's plan for me, I have lots of blind spots. And so I, I need help. I need someone else to say, like, yes, that's a good idea. No, that's not a good idea. So, again, I, I sought out a monastery and uh, asked them to help me. <laughs> so, uh, and here I am. You're welcome. So, uh, but it, it does, you know, I'll say it, it does, um, I remember my first uh, Good Friday in the monastery. Um, I had actually spent the previous triduum here as a retreatant, but now I was a novice. And um, I, I, I don't know what caused it. There may be physiological reasons or something. We were fasting, of course. Uh, but some, at some point in the morning of that day, I was supposed to be helping with the meal. And I, I felt uh, so depressed and so uh, down. Uh, not, how, how can I, it's, it's hard for me to explain it. But I, I went to Father Brendan, who was my novice master, and I, I, I told him I, I just felt terrible. And he, you know what he said, he said, why don't you go to your cell and think about everything you've given up and, and offer it to God? So I, you know, I had, uh, you know, a year before this, I was playing clubs around Chicago, <laughs> and uh, you know, I was a pretty successful musician, um, and, and and so I had, to, but I had to give that up. I had to change my my form of life, right? And so, uh, but then you miss those the things that I used to do to lighten the mood. I didn't have anymore, and I, I couldn't just turn on the radio or put on my CDs. I, I uh, in my first fervor of conversion, I, I gave away all of my music, and Father Brendan likes to scold me for that from time to time. He said, "You should have given it to the monastery." <laughs> uh, but in any case, I didn't have any of this music. And when I entered, I think we had like eight CDs, and um, they were all like, you know. Uh, classical music for people who hate classical music. I'm like, well, that's not for me. <laughs> um, you know, I used to go play basketball on uh, street courts and things like that. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. Uh, and, and so when these things are taken away, the, the way of life that I used to have, and it's replaced with something else, there are these days when uh, we, we, we feel emptied out, you know. And that's normal. And, and again, I think your question if a person can endure that and not run away, <laughs> then, then we say, yes, we think God's calling him to this, which answers your question as well, because it requires grace to continue along this route. It's not something uh, that we can just kind of gin ourselves up to do. It's something we have to wait on God's assistance, right? So, so change of life, conversion of life, 
this is what I'm talking about today. So, so the, the vow of conversatio is a vow to undergo a kind of change. Uh, but as I say, it's important to keep remembering it's a, a conversion to a way of life and an abandonment of a former way of life. So, uh, we, we enter into a different culture. This culture has its own books, literature, as I said, there are the scriptures, there's the fathers, there's the Latin language, for example, that we use a lot of. Uh, we don't get to choose our own food. We, we adopt the diet of the monastery. Uh, it's a diet that, that does not include a lot of beef or pork and excludes uh, all meats and dairy products for Lent. Um, clothing, you know, I, I don't have the old uh, rugby shirts I used to wear. I've got this. Um, and uh, that's, that's how monks dress. That's, that's you know, that's uh, a part of the way of life. It always has been. Which reminds me, I forgot to mention about St. Benedict's stabilizing or something. Um, in the ceremony for vows of the monk, one of the things that happens is the monk removes his clothes and is given the habit, the, the monastery's clothing. His clothes are kept in a, a trunk somewhere in case he ever decides to go so there's something that he can wear. Uh, though St. Benedict says, you know, God forbid this should actually happen. Uh, but this changing of clothes is really significant, and it's something, again, I think we might not be as aware of because for most people in the modern world, clothing is a lifestyle choice, again. Like as I said, I, I tended to wear uh, casual was like rugby shirts. Dress-up was uh, sort of typical entertainer look. Um, you know, sort of nice shirt with without a tie, but uh, tweed or other coat or something like that, you know. Um, uh, I could have worn something else, and entertainers like to change the way they look to sort of stay ahead of the fashion curve and so on. Uh, so because we think of clothing as being a lifestyle choice, I happen to like this look, or I like what it says about me. We, it's not often the case that we see that clothing in ancient cultures or traditional cultures really says who you are. Okay? Uh, we see this at the Mass. Uh, when, after terse, we process to the sacristy, when we come out again, we're dressed differently. <laughs> Why is that? Well, in part, that's because the priests are becoming other people. You know, we're becoming alter Christus. Uh, we put on the, the chasuble and everything. We'd, we're no longer to be seen as Father Peter or Father Edward. We're to be seen as Christ and his angels ministering at the altar. right? So uh, the clothing removes, it's, in part it removes singularity and individuality and, and conforms us, conform, right? gives us the form of Christ as the high priest. Okay? The, the brothers who are not ordained come out in a different garb. But this change of, of clothing is meant to signify the change in the person or, or to bring out a certain character of that person uh, according to the standard norms of a way of life again. Uh, so it's not, a, it's not an individual choice what we get to wear in the monastery. It's, it is um, given to us by our station in the monastery. So I had someone ask me recently, you know, why I wear... Oh, he, he's Greek Orthodox, and so... He was wondering why uh, only the abbots and priors wore the pectoral cross and not the other priests, because in, in Greek Orthodoxy, priests all wear the pectoral cross. And so it's a different way of life, you know, uh, based in different traditions in the East and West. So, uh, St. Benedict's rule is an introduction to this way of life. Ah, good, I have lots more to say, so we won't run out before. Uh, so, let me talk about oblates now, because this is, this is where it gets interesting, and I think uh, we can be somewhat creative together. Because you have a task uh, that I said would be kind of difficult, if I could use it on analogy with what I said about trying to live, say, French culture in America. Uh, it's not very easy to do. You see this with immigrant, 
cultures, right? Uh, and so we even have terms for this, like first generation, second generation immigrant, because why is that? Because second generation is already different, right? Faces different situations, probably grows up speaking the local language, uh, watching local television programs, going to school, engaging in activities with kids who have, who, whose families have been in the culture for generations. And so the children start to pick up all kinds of things of this new culture that the parents don't know about or have a harder time sort of changing to meet. And so uh, what happens is as we live in a new culture, eventually it changes us. So just as this happens in the, in the monastery, when we enter the monastery, just doing the forms over many years, getting up at a certain time, using these certain prayers, dressing a certain way, it really does change who we are. In a similar way, when an immigrant family comes to the United States, at, over time, the family changes and becomes American, right? Um, the difficulty for, for you all is that you're wanting to live a form of life uh, that we live uh, in, in continuity with what we do in the cloister. And we have a fairly strict boundary, so we don't, we don't mix with the world that much. Uh, but you're, you're aiming to do that while you're living in, in a foreign culture, as it were. Right? Now this is true for all Christians. Let's just admit again, when Paul says that our conversatio is in heaven, part of what he's saying is that we're, we're aliens in this world. That this is not our home. But that requires us then uh, to make a, a, a certain big effort to live as if our homeland is somewhere else and to preserve the values of that homeland. And I think something Father Brendan said in his homily today uh, was, was very telling. We perhaps used to be better at this in the Catholic Church so that uh, when, when we left our Christmas trees up until February 2nd and didn't apologize, that was a way of saying that the culture out there, that's not our culture. We have to live there, but we're in exile. Our culture is the heavenly one. And in this one, we celebrate Christmas for 40 days uh, because there, there's actually, uh, we are, our form of life is, is inducting us into the life of Christ. And it was 40 days between his birth and his presentation in the temple. So as we recapitulate that in our own lives, we, we celebrate this whole period of time in a certain way. Uh, I think for various reasons, uh, say after the council, there were certain pressures to, to, and, and openings to sort of conform more to contemporary Western culture, non-Catholic culture. And, um, you know, that it, it happened. We can't go back on it. But, but it presents a different kind of challenge for us now, especially for you as oblates, because uh, I, I don't think it would be harmful to, just to speak more openly about being on pilgrimage, maybe that's a better way of saying it than exile or, or alienation or something like that. But this is very traditional language again. Uh, we're on pilgrimage. We don't live here. We just happen to be passing through. Um, hopefully, because we're passing through and we, we live a certain way that's different than everybody else, we share uh, knowledge of, of this glorious place to which we're pilgrimaging in a way that others want to share it too. You know, we, we actually evangelize. Uh, we, we share our hope with others. And uh, others may join us. They may, they may become pilgrims with us. Uh, so, but, but pilgrims don't stop in, in the place. Uh, the goal is to get to where you're going. If you don't keep moving, you won't get there. Um, thinking of uh, the, uh, what's the Capostella row that, that uh, what's it? The Camino. The Camino, yeah, yeah. If you're going to do the whole Camino, uh, you, you, you have to stop and rest from time to time, but if you end up spending three or four days at each rest stop, it'll take you five years <laughs> to do the Camino, and, and you'll never, you, know, you won't actually finish. So you have to, much as you might not feel like getting back on your feet the next day and doing another ten miles, uh, that's, that's what a pilgrim does. He keeps walking. We don't we don't do pilgrimages as much as we used to either. This was a big deal in the Middle Ages, you know. It's still a big deal for Muslims, right? That, that you have to do this once in your life. You have to make a pilgrimage, and it's at 
you know, pretty high personal cost to do something like that. We do this, uh, as I say, um, figuratively by living the life of the goal as much as we can in the midst of a culture that, that doesn't support it very much. Right? So, so, um, and, and the practices we've been talking about, the practices of Lexio Divina, the Divine Office, um, participation in community, these things are going to be what keeps us focused on the goal, right? So uh, that eventually our imaginations, the way we act, all these things are suffused with this Christian objective, with this heavenly objective, and no longer with the kinds of concerns uh, that are in the world. One more small anecdote. I may have told you this already, but I I find it so amusing and and telling that I'll share with you again. Uh, Once... Three times a year, we have a group of students come from the University of Chicago with the Lumen Christi Institute, and they they share uh, vespers with us, and then we have a meal. During the meal, I read something from the Fathers or uh, another spiritual book of some kind, and then we have a discussion. And so I was reading about uh, the vice of acedia, kind of spiritual sloth or boredom with the spiritual life, and um, I suggested in the discussion afterward that Uh, we don't so much experience boredom with the spiritual life as we experience a kind of push to a kind of hyperactive work and entertainment, you know. And uh, and I said, yeah, some people I used to know from college, they'll they'll do this thing where they they watch like a whole TV series in one weekend. And uh, suddenly everything got really quiet and all these students were sort of... Now, see, this is very interesting. Uh, people have time to spend hours and hours and hours watching a television series, uh, which really sort of fixes us in this culture. You know, it's really suffusing myself, drenching myself in, in the values, images, language of present-day America, rather than, you know doing the divine office, doing Lexia Divina, and drenching myself in the word of God. And, and so becoming that sort of person. Uh, very, very interesting. These people were serious enough about their faith to come to the monastery on a Saturday night. You know, so I, I don't want to criticize them too much. But think of how, you know, how much more we could profit by living as if our culture really is the church. The, the, and and, and the, you know, the church... The whole church, the totus Christus, right? So church, not only militant, but all the saints and angels too, right? So all the, those are the people that are our friends. Those are the people that are our heroes. They're the ones who pray for us and we talk to. Uh, if, we, if we do all of these things, again, eventually it will change us. But it requires perseverance and regularity. It requires a kind of form of life. And this is what we're trying to work on for you as oblates, you have these stable practices that support you in making this change of life. The last thing I want to end with today is, um, again, just talking about a little of the dynamics of conversion. Because when it happens, there's often a certain resistance that we have because we don't realize what's taking place. <laughs> okay? Um, and I, I mentioned... Uh, my first Good Friday here. Uh, I think I was fairly aware of what was going on there. Today, uh, if something happens in the monastery that I don't particularly like, you know, a brother does something or other, um, when I was a younger superior, I almost certainly would intervene sort of on the drop of a a drop of a hat, at the drop of a hat. Uh, I'm getting my metaphors mixed up. Uh, I see something that's that's wrong. I'm the superior. It must be my job to fix it. (laughs) And one learns that uh, this has diminishing returns. And it, it, it can make everybody in the monastery on edge and unhappy if I'm constantly going around correcting things. Um... And if I don't, 
And then something continues to be done in a way that seems not correct to me in some way or other. I'm just speaking personally now as, as a superior. Uh, here's another possibility. Maybe God wants me to change. You know, maybe, maybe the way I'm going about being superior is not actually the way God wants me to do it. But allowing this change to take place in me might actually cause a great amount of discomfort because I have to live with the situation where there's something happening that really seems wrong. Um, wrong is, is it's, it's a loaded word. Uh, I have a fear that if I don't address it, everything will fall apart. Well, maybe, maybe that kind of habit of waiting for the other shoe to drop isn't very one that exudes a lot of faith in, in God's leading of the community. Maybe, because, let's think of it this way. Uh, how often have we, if, if we're learning a new behavior, it can be helpful to have someone say, hey, you're doing that wrong, do it this way. That, that can be helpful sometimes. But it can also be helpful for us to come to a point where we realize again that my behavior doing it this way doesn't work. And then I, I have the incentive to say, hey, wait a minute, I've got to change. Because I keep doing it this way and I'm banging my head against the wall and it's no fun. So what if I did it this way? Now, as superior again, if I see somebody who's doing something that I know is less than productive, let's say, I could try to make a shortcut and say, hey, do it this way. But until that, that brother sees that, that his behavior is actually causing him his own misery, he might not actually have the incentive to change, if you know what I mean. But then once he realizes, well, wait a minute, I could be different. I could be different and not just have it forced on me. I want it different. I don't like being like this. The change suddenly becomes easier, right? Than just being, and it's not a personal tug of war between me and that brother. Um, so the reason I'm saying all this is the way change comes about is not always because we plan it or we decide this is the right thing to do. It's actually a slow process of accumulating insights about ourselves, about the gospel, about the people we live with, about uh, human nature, <laughs> about grace, how God acts. Uh, and a lot of this learning is, takes place in a kind of passive way. Again, that we just wake up one morning and say, hey, I don't have to be like this. <laughs> and we don't know why we had that inspiration. I, mean, I think this gets to what you were asking. Um, there isn't a formula. Maybe it's God's grace. Maybe it's the aging process. Um, all kinds of things can happen, but... but we have incentives to change, and we have insights about how change might actually help in ways that are hard to predict. And the danger is that if we try to plan it out too much, say this happens to almost everybody under the monastery, like this year I'm going to read all of Augustine, next year I'm going to read all of Gregory of Nazianzen, next year, and, and by year five I'm going to be a saint. <laughs> and, uh, or, you know, this year for Lent, I'm giving up X. Next year I'm giving up that, and next year that. And then I'll be a spiritual guru for Chicago. Um, and, in, and in fact, of course, what happens is we find that these sorts of personal uh, improvement plans tend to fail. <laughs> we run out of steam. Uh, circumstances get in the way. All kinds of things. Uh, but what happens then is we we actually are undergoing a kind of change because I'm realizing that my initial understanding of how the spiritual life works was incorrect or was missing part of the, the equation in some way. So I have to let go of certain ambitions that I had that looked good to me when I was at that stage. Um, and it may feel like I'm, I'm, I'm uh, giving up in some way, that I'm, I'm not as fervent as I used to be. But it might also be a kind of wisdom. It might be a kind of maturity. 
Now, all this takes a kind of discernment, so that's why part of the reason we're in community, because we can ask, you know, do you think it would be better if I did this? Um, I'll say again, with some of the guys we've had come through the monastery over the years, I've had to order them to eat, because um, you know, they think, I'm a monk, now I'm going to fast, and, uh, uh, and I'm not going to eat anything for three days. And uh, there's an apocryphal story I, I heard many years ago, and... Uh, uh, it was about St. Francis of Assisi, and he, he was going to stay up all night praying. And he stayed up all night praying, and it was glorious. And the next day he was tired, and a brother asked him something, and he snapped at him. <laughs> and he said, oh, I gave the night to God, and I'm giving the day to the devil. So, so Francis learned something. Like as, as much as there might be this great urge to pray all night, uh, it's going to have certain consequences. And so a certain kind of moderation would actually be the better route. Right? So, but these changes can often feel discomforting because we feel like the great aspirations we used to have are not there, or we feel like we haven't made any progress, or we feel like the one thing that we thought we could hang on to, we have to give that up to. Uh, there are all kinds of things. And when we start to feel bad about this, uh, one of the temptations is to grab at old behaviors, you know, to grab at old things that made us feel better. Uh, or to think that the way of life we've chosen isn't working, right? So, oh, this monastic life, uh, I see what it actually does now. It just makes everybody old and bitter, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, no, no, the, the, the key, again, is the, the monastic way of life, the Benedictine rule, has survived for 1,500 years because it really does work. But we have to continue to live that way of life. We, can, we can't give up at a certain point uh, because it's too hard. Uh, so... Too hard being something very subjective that we sort of decide for ourselves. Like, oh, I can't do this anymore. Um, well, yeah, sure you can. Just just sit still and don't go anywhere. And eventually, you know, things will change. Uh, it's t- Today or even the last week or the last year isn't determinative of the, the final goal. Um, so they're always... And, and if I'm in a crisis position like this, clearly God wants me to learn something from it. He wants me to change in some wants me to discover what it is that I could be instead, rather than this, this uh, irritated or sad or angry person. Uh, let go of whatever it is that's causing that. This will be something else for podcasts, you know, the problem of the passions. Um, why are you at war with one another, James says? Is it not because of your passions? <laughs> right? Uh, so when we find that we have these, these moments where it gets difficult, where we're suffering, I think if, you, if we can remember at those times to offer it up, you know, that, that I'm making this change because I'm seeking God, and God's purifying me through this suffering, eventually we'll, we'll come out on the other end a different person. We're going to look at things differently after we've gone through this experience. And what we might dis- discover is that we don't need the thing that we, we thought we needed before we don't actually need. So I think that in my experience, a lot of times the struggles in monastic life are because we want something that we can't have. And we get grumpy about it. I want to, I want to do the thing I used to go out. Uh, you know, in 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 our case, I think maybe because we live in Chicago, I'm sure this happens in more remote places. Uh, it's often connected to you know doing something outside the monastery. Oh, if I could only go to the museums more often or something like that. Uh, why do I have to sit here all the time? Um, but it, what we'll learn eventually, again. It's the way human passions work. If, if you don't satisfy them, they eventually just go away. You know? um, that's that's a, a monastic insight. But this is a conversion that we have. That, uh, we change. We change the things we want. Uh, we change what we think is normal for a person to be like, for what a person does. Um, this change also... It helps if we recognize that the person we are now isn't perfect. <laughs> you know, that, that we actually need to change yet. So that we're willing to accept the change when it happens. Because we remember, oh wait a minute, the way I used to do things, um, aspects of my life that were sinful, that were full of imperfections, uh, I want to change that. I, I want to uh, become heroic in virtue. And I won't do that uh, unless... Uh, I undergo a certain kind of transformation. And God's grace will do this, but as he's changing us, 
You know, we may very well feel like it's suffering and, and not uh, a simple sort of progress from one triumph to another of, of spiritual greatness. Um, and so I'll just end by saying, you know, in the end, the spiritual life looks like this. You know, it, it looks like failure. Uh, but it's, it's giving ourselves over to God. And then in the resurrection, we see, you know, that's our hope, that we'll be changed. Christ comes back with a glorified body and the, the disciples don't recognize him right away. <laughs> He's a different guy. So, uh, let me stop there and just see, are there any other questions or, or insights you have from this? Thoughts? Yes, Guy. You mentioned um, in the conversion life that, you know, it's not about trying so hard because you fall into these old habits. Mm-hmm. Like, can you, I mean, it's not like you touched a little bit on that. Sure. It's not, but can you give another example of that? Sure. Um, so I would say as oblates, well, it's funny because I said this to the community this morning. I often hear brothers when they make a mistake or something say, well, I'll try harder. And um, the, the difficulty with this is that I think what the brothers are saying is usually tied to a certain kind of uh, feeling about the life. Like I'll try to want to do the right thing more. And what I would say is, well, simply do the thing you're supposed to do. Don't, don't think about it too much how you feel about it. Just, just get to the office on time. <laughs> you know, just show up at the meals. Just do the cleaning. Um, don't try to find great deep significance in it. Learn a different way of life. Eventually it will make sense. Eventually all this will come together. Um, but in my experience, when people try harder, they try to find sort of feelings and motivations to do things. Sometimes these are helpful. Sometimes, as I mentioned, sometimes we get just dissatisfied with ourselves. We think, well, you know, heck with this. I'm going to change, you know. But a lot of times it's just a matter of, um, say, you know, another example would be like learning a language. Uh, Some people, when they learn a language, they, they want to try to understand everything right away. Now, just say the thing that you know how to say over and over and over and over and over again. And then add, add something later on. And then just listen and, and jump in and just do it. And don't think about it too much. <laughs> you know? uh, um, but and it's, you know, eventually, if you live in a culture long enough, you wake up one day and you realize, wow, I just had a dream in French. You know? Or you go to the restaurant and you order and you, say, and you realize, well, I didn't even think I was saying, speaking French. Mm-hmm. You know? But that's because of habits of just doing it. It's not about sort of ginning myself up to speak French. <laughs> right? Yeah. Tony? Your last comments suggest that uh, an important part of the one's progress is not to be too attached to any one response you have yeah. to the changes that are happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of dynamic of not a dynamic of practice of mm-hmm. attachment. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least an awareness that it's better to just as you say, recognize you've got some thoughts and responses, mm-hmm. but do what you're asked. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, we actually, I'll, I'll use a technical term that we, you get in monastic literature, detachment. All right, so detachment from my feelings, detachment from my thoughts, even, uh, you know, so that I can look at them and decide if I want to keep them or not. It's not a suppression. No, no, it's an awareness uh, that I have these thoughts and feelings, but we don't really know their significance until we have some experience in the monastic life. So just be aware of that. Maybe to, if, if there are some that are particularly troubling or difficult, to share them with someone with a little more experience. Um, but uh, so, say, um, Maria Thomas, who uh, the retired abbess from St. Walburgus, when she gave our retreat, uh, she said something that stuck with me. We, as monks and nuns, we want to create a deliberate distance between ourselves and our thoughts. Uh, we are not our thoughts. They just happen to be what are, what's in our heads right now. But they're not necessarily determinative, uh, it, unless we think they should be. <laughs> but they may not be. And, and in fact, in monastic spirituality, we understand that there are some thoughts that are harmful, and if we hold on to them, and, and uh, as, as logical as they might seem to me, they actually cause me harm. And so if I if I let just stay detached from them, and and shape my thoughts by the actions given to me by the way of life. Just do the thing. Um, 
another retired prioress in this case. And uh, a monk or a nun is someone who's doing what he should be doing, when he should be doing it, the way he should be doing it. <laughs> right? And so, uh, again, how I think or feel about it doesn't come into the equation. It's just a question of uh, following this form. That stability of observance allows me to come up, become aware of my thoughts in a, in a deeper way than I might have been before because, um, because we don't let the thoughts determine what we're doing. <laughs> and, and then we, can, we become aware that there, there is a distance between what I'm doing and what I'm thinking. And, and then we can, we can decide if we want to think this or not, or feel this or not. We can, we can let go of it. So we need to. if I am not my thoughts or my mm-hmm. emotions, or if I'm consuming about my desires or memories, mm-hmm. those are the experiences that I have. Mm-hmm. Am I, am I uh, I guess I'm a, I'm a soul with a will and a consciousness. Oh, we're bodies. Bodies. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. But I'm not any one of my body sensations. I don't, I don't know if that, I mean, we could speculate on this, but I think that gets away from the kind of practicality of the monastic way of thinking. Um, I'm doing this because Christ wants me to. Who I am, how I characterize myself, isn't so important. Yeah. Um, What's important is that I do what, what God asks of me at this moment, and that I learn by doing this how to evaluate the thoughts and feelings that I have, whether they're helpful. You're welcome. Uh, let's go with Dennis. Yeah. Just real, just real quick. Sure. We got to keep going here. No um, problem. We can take five more minutes. You know, you're talking about the uh, Saint Anthony. You know, 20 mm-hmm. years, 30 years, how long it took, and mm-hmm. it just reminds me of into the great silence. Did you ever see that? I still haven't seen it, believe it or not. Uh, and no. uh, you know, they wanted to film the, the monastery up in uh, the French house. Uh-huh. Up in France, but anyway. Uh, Guys like uh, the Abbot's like, yeah, we'll get back to you. They got back to him 16 years later. <laughs> yep, yep. So it's just had to think about it. Yeah, I had to think about it. Yeah. So yeah, it was, uh, I don't know, just the time, I, I know I want to be knocked off the horse too, you know, mm-hmm. like St. Yeah. Paul, but it's just not going to happen every yeah. God's time. Yep, yep. <laughs> That's what I got to Yeah. Uh, I just I use that example about that film uh, that the, the abbot made them wait. I mean, partly I think they're testing the filmmaker. Is he is he really serious about working with us, or is he going to just you know use us for his own purposes, right? Are we going to are we going to be partners on this? If so, he, we're going to see how, how much does he want it. <laughs> yeah. Kevin, uh, you were going to ask a question. Yeah, Right. Yeah, I, I think they should, but we have to be creative together. I, I think what I, I'm hoping that we'll do together is talk about what are the sorts of patterns of behavior that are helpful? How can we support one another? How can we encourage each other to, to stick with it? Um, you know, well, those, those sorts of things. Um, I think every oblate program and every monastery is going to be dealing with the same sorts of things. We can also make use of resources from other communities. Um, uh, but uh, yes, I, I think Abla should uh, certainly with the divine office and Lexio Divina that should be a, a really intrinsic part of how we change the way we think. Uh, but I also realize how difficult it is in the world to fit those things in. So we need to work together and talk. You're good at it, though I know. <laughs> the big challenge, though, is that you know if you're not close to Right, so that's going to be my, my next talk. <laughs> we, we do need to figure that one out, what that means uh, for you all. Uh, the the ne- next month, the next lecture will be Father Brendan again. He's going to be talking about uh, Clement, the letter, first letter of Clement of Rome. Um, so I'll be talking about obedience two months from, from now. Uh, Guy, one last question. I was just going to say that for the next, when you talk about obedience, if you could touch upon that. Sure. What you're talking about now about not grumbling. Yes. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I mean, I think that's one of the key things because uh, 
Yes, obedience in a monastery has a certain very strong form to it. But at root, it is accepting that I'm not in charge and not complaining about it. Not complaining about the person who is in charge. Like the uh, people of Israel do when they get out in the desert. and they right? We hear this every morning at the invitatory. You know, ah, there's, there's bread. When are we going to get some real food? <laughs> I remember Egypt. What was this God? Why is, you know, it was better when we were slaves back there. So, uh, yeah, so, you know, living in the world as it is, uh, it's, still, it's still God's world, you know. Um, things aren't, they don't always go the way we want, but he allows them to be that way for a certain purpose. And so first thing is to accept that that is, uh, that is a part of God's plan in some way. And so um, not to conform ourselves to it, but, but, uh, but also not to be drawn in by negativity uh, and, and complaint. So, so thank you for mentioning murmuring. That's very helpful. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we uh, conclude here for today. And uh, th- thank you again so much for being here. And uh, I, I look forward to being in touch with you more frequently with Father Edward's help. So let's pray together. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. Our Holy Father, St. Benedict, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.